Welcome in. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I tried to do no permanent damage today. All right. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're picking up. Um, I have the privilege of pastoring a church on the other side of L.A. And so if you keep going west, you end up in the ocean here. And if you keep going east and past my church, you end up in Orange County. So it is nice to connect and not have to drive here in traffic. So Sunday is a good time to do this. I appreciate Pastor Trevor inviting me out. And so if you're a guest here, uh, the good news is uh, he'll be back next week for sure, right? And he doesn't look like me, so if that scares you, that's good. All right, well, you can come back. Paul is writing this book to a mentor, uh, to a, a, someone he has mentored, a disciple of his named Timothy. If you have no background in the Bible at all, if you're unfamiliar, let me just say this. The church that Timothy is leading at this point in time is in Ephesus. It's one of the churches we probably have the most written to. We see Paul begin this church in the book of Acts. We see a letter written to them called the book of Ephesians, or what we call the book of Ephesians. We see 1 and 2 Timothy written to them. John even writes to the church in Ephesus in his final book, Revelation. And so we see this church, a, a big spectrum of time in this church, and at this point, Paul is calling Timothy his true son in the faith. That's what Paul calls Timothy to put this church in order. And so this church has struggled with things. And Paul has sent Timothy to lead and to guide it into a place of health. And so because I'm in chapter 2, I want to back up and I want to catch two verses in 1 Timothy before I get to it, but first, I want to give you a main idea. So here's, if you're a note taker, here's kind of a, a main idea for today. Staying true to God in a world of lies. Paul describes the church as a community engaged in a battle of gospel truth versus false belief and says the casualties are human souls. Churches praying together advance the cause of Christ. So chapter 2 kind of functions as a how do you gather in an orderly fashion? So I have the first half, Pastor Trevor gets the hard half, which is the back half. You'll know what that means next week for sure. And so <laughs> he laughed at least. All right, so he has the challenging passages. I got the easy one. But as Paul is instructing Timothy, he's helping them when they gather. And that's important for this message today because we could misunderstand it and think it's just about us alone. Now, two quick verses from chapter 1. It's verse 3. He says, as I urged you, Paul speaking to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So here's his challenge to Timothy. I want you to contradict, or I want you to fight against false teachings, and cultural things that are creeping into the church. So there's false teachings that are kind of under the guise of Christian teachings but are false. And then there are cultural teachings, also false, but they're coming in from the culture. A few verses later, verse 18, Paul continues and he says this, I tr the ch This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare. 
So Paul describes the church, as we said in that kind of opening main idea, that he describes the church as being engaged in a battle. And the battle is about gospel truth versus falsehoods or lies or things that people within the church are believing and are being taught. And that they are in this bit of battle, this combat. They're fighting against these things. And I often tell generations, listen, that we are fighting a war on two different fronts. And I, just hearing some of the history of this church, I think you've experienced this and probably experienced it today. Clearly, we're always fighting against the, the false things that culture is pushing, right? We're, we're fighting against things that culture says are either good for us or what we're meant for, right? I even heard Pastor Troy, like, just, this isn't about you, this is about God. Or, or not looking internally, as the elders said earlier, but lifting our eyes up, right? Culture would teach us that the answers are within, but the Bible teaches us to look up. And so there's culture, but then sometimes false teaching creeps into the church. And so we're fighting oftentimes this war against culture over here and this war against American church culture over here. And so we can find ourselves engaging this battle for gospel truth with two fronts. It'd be like America fighting on the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. It'd be this war on two sides that's constantly pulling your attention one way or the other. And so this war on two fronts, and Paul has been telling Timothy to, to battle that false doctrine, battle those false teachers. So chapter 2, our text for today, starts in verse 1, says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So when you gather, right, when you, when you gather the church like this, when you gather together, he says, first of all, then, that then... Functions like a therefore. You're engaged in this battle, therefore, first of all, giving it priority, giving it importance. He says, I urge, right again, you can hear how he is saying, like, he's not just suggesting or here's a good idea, but of first importance because of this struggle, I urge you, and here's what he says, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So I'll short form that really quick. I urge you when you gather together to pray more, he says. You, the church, when you gather together, pray. And then he qualifies that with four different terms. Supplications are basically asking God to supply for particular needs. The second one is prayers, obviously spending time talking to God and listening to God, right? Prayer should be a dialogue, not just a monologue, right? That's for another day, but pray, spend time praying together. Intercessions are intervening or interceding on behalf of someone else. This morning on the drive-in, as I was praying for you all, right, there's interceding for you. I was also praying for a guy that I know that is not a believer who watches Generations messages each week, praying that he will come to know faith, right? Praying for or on behalf of others. And then thanksgivings, gratefulness, or thanking God for things. Do we, when we pray, just dive into what we need? Right, that was the beauty of the liturgy today. The beauty, if you're not familiar, that the order of the service here today. Right, our church follows the same kind of a, a, a kind of a traditionally reformedish liturgy, where we begin, we proclaim who God is, and when we rightly proclaim who God is, what happens is we figure out we're not that. Right, fair. That we don't measure up. 
We hear from the law. We're like, yeah, I don't love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my might, right? I don't pass this on in my home the way I should. And so we confess our sin to God. We hear the, the promise or the, or the assurance of our pardon or our forgiveness, right? We are thankful and grateful. We respond. We give. Or maybe if you're new here, maybe you take that next step to get connected here. And so we kind of move through this, this kind of flow of service. And what that does is kind of like this verse reminds us that prayer isn't just me saying, oh, I'm in need, God, help, right? Or, hey, there's this problem, God, please solve it. Or, hey, I need a, a job or, or, or this or that. But that we can pray, that we can pray for others, that we can be thankful and grateful in all circumstances. So I was driving here and getting off the freeway. I saw a homeless guy on the, on the corner there. I was able to pray for him. Not, I don't want to sound super spiritual. It's not like I spent all my day praying, but the drive here I did. Right? And I don't know his circumstances, right? but clearly I'm having a better day than he is. Right? So pray. Be grateful. I'm grateful that's not me. You guys don't know my background. I mean, you can kind of take some guesses. You probably wouldn't be far off. But that could have been me. Right? And so I'm grateful. I'm thankful. So pray these prayers. He says, when you gather together, pray. So I want to read that again. Verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So pray for all people. Now, that sounds like an impossible task, and if you read it that way, it is, right? You're thinking, okay, there's some billion something or other people in other nations. How do I pray for that? Whatever, right? No, it's just saying, like, listen, don't limit your prayers to yourself or to your church or to people you like or maybe praying against people you don't like, whatever, right? Not that you would ever do that. I know. I get it. Right? But pray for all people. Right? Pray for people. I was thinking on the drive here, I have this woman uh, in my church. She's actually is our bookkeeper also, but she's a little older and, uh, and really crazy. I can say that she's not here. So, right? And really kind of crazy. She has this consistent like kind of a prayer request each week. We get those and our elders, our deacons, our staff, our leaders, we pray for those prayer requests. And each week she she asks us to pray for uh, President Biden, for Kamala Harris, for Gavin Newsom, all of which I can tell you she didn't vote for, for sure, right? Having the opportunity, somebody else would be on that prayer list. But when it was the candidate she had voted for or the candidate she didn't, all that changes is the names, that she is constantly asking that we as a church pray for those people. And every time I read this verse, verse 2, for kings and for all who are in high positions, I'm reminded of her prayers, and her prayers cause me weekly to pray for people that I may not normally pray for, maybe even sometimes want to pray for, or whatever, but it reminds us of this. So pray for all people. Pray for those you know. Pray for those in your community. Pray for all people. So there's a variety of prayers, and then we're given a variety of people. So if you're a note taker, I'll put this on the screen, or they will put this on the screen for you. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. God calls us to pray generously during our gathered times of worship for as many people as we can pray for, including those who oppose the gospel. Right? Pray for those who disagree with us. Pray for those who are pushing in a different direction than us. So pray for those people. Each, each week in church, we pray for other churches even. 
right? We'll pray for Risen. We'll pray for Bethany Baptist and Belfar. We'll pray for Reformed Church of LA. We'll pray for other churches that we partner together with, right? Because other people are doing good gospel work as well. And we will pray for our community, which is not very Christian, right? We will pray for a community where the dominant faith is different than Christian in our community. And so we'll pray for them in our service. And so as we say, when you gather together, pray all types of prayers for all types of people, generously pray for them. Isaiah 56, you guys all know this verse probably, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for just us people. Oh, wait, wait, for all peoples. That's right, okay. That we should be praying for all peoples. Now, we can't pray for everybody. We can't pray for the unknown person in Papua New Guinea that we've never heard of. But we can pray for people beyond what we know of. And we can for sure do more to pray for the people that God has placed in our path. So God is now going to give us two outcomes. This is the last time I promise I read verse 1. I know I'm reading it over and over. But let's start there. First of all, then I urge this supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Verse 2, for kings and for all who are in high positions. Here's the first reason, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul gives the first purpose of a praying church, or why we pray when we gather. Right? We're to pray for others, and here's the first outcome, right? That we might lead a peaceful and quiet life. Again, if you're a note taker, I want to just write some of these things down. So here's another one. Praying for a peaceful life in a world of opposition isn't about seeking our personal happiness, but rather protects us from falling away due to persecution. So in this context, peaceful, when he says pray for all people, kings and position, people in positions of authority, Remember, he's a Christian church in Ephesus, which is saturated, if you remember the book of Acts, with worship of Artemis or Diana. So there's a, a common worship that they're not it, right? So they oppose them. In fact, a riot breaks out in Ephesus in the book of Acts because so many people are coming to faith that people who make idols of Diana or Artemis are losing money. By the way, church goal of mine. I want to make such an impact. I want to see our church make such an impact that people that profit from sin lose money. That's rad, right? Church goals, right? Everybody's got to have goals. And so they're in this context, and if you go another layer up, there's Caesar, right? And so Rome is the major dominant power, and Caesar is persecuting and executing Christians. This takes place throughout the first century where the church is exploding onto the first century landscape. So Paul, when he writes to Timothy, is saying, listen, pray for them, pray for everybody above us, that we might be able to live a peaceable, a quiet, a, a life inside this opposition, right? And so he's not just praying for comfort, for more money, for better food, for a bigger building, or, or, or anything. Pray for the people in charge because of the opposition against the church, because ultimately when there's opposition, people tend to fall away. So when you gather, pray for these things. Pray that God would give you this blessing inside your community. Verse 3. He says, Paul says, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
So note what Paul identifies God as. God our Savior, who, ident- who desires all people to be saved. So here's the second purpose that Paul gives the gathered church when they're meeting to pray. So pray for the leadership that causes often the opposition. And that, that we might be able to live in this community peaceful and, and, and live godly lives within this community. And then the second reason is that God desires some of those people to come to faith. Oh God, Let me rephrase that. God desires that all of them would come to faith. Now, that takes a little qualification. When we look at God's will, and it says that God desires all people to be saved, we have to understand that. And so I've got a couple terms to give you. Hopefully one or two will stick, right? So there's three ways-ish to understand God's will here or his desire here. And so the first one is God's providential will. That's God's sovereignty. God's sovereign will means this. If God says so, he will make it happen because he is sovereign. God answers to no one and nothing. God, top of the org chart. So if God providentially says, then it's going to happen, right? Like God spoke and the world came into being because he's God, right? So that's providential will or sovereign will. Then there's God's preceptive will. Like the, the, a precept would be like a statute or a law or uh, like the freeway is supposed to be 65. Note how I said supposed to be. I'm sure I blurred that a bit on my way here, right? That's preceptive will. Preceptive will is like the speed limit. That's like God saying, I want you to do this, right? This is how you should live. Anything outside of this, we would call sin, right? When you choose your way over God's way, we'll call that sin. So God's precepts, that's how you're to live. And then there's God's permissive will, right? So that was pretty, I'm not a Baptist, but that could be Baptist, right? Providential What I say, perceptive and permissive. That's pretty good. So, permissive. What does God allow you to do? So, if I choose to sin, God allows for that, right? That's not what he wants. That's not what he's commanded like he's going to cause. But he has allowed room for me to grow in that area, right? Another way to say that, and this kind of fits this passage a little better, is God's demands that he will make happen. God's uh, God's design, how we should live, and then God's desire. Like, like, I wish you would do this and pay attention because this is for your good and for my glory, but you don't always do this, right? And so this is in that category. His desires that all would come to faith. Now, if he had, if he had demanded it, we'd all come to faith, right? Makes sense? But this is with an allowance. His will allows for us to make decisions within that. And so let me put this on the screen. God's salvation for all. God desires all people to be saved, quote from verse 4. Though not not all will come to faith, churches are to pray for all those around us that they might come to faith. Right? We pray that God would soften their hearts. Like I said, there's a, a guy out of town who's actually a friend of my one of my pastor's daughters. And they watch the message every week around noon or one o'clock when they have a break at work. And they're watching it, and, and they're watching it, and, and we're praying for this man named Aaron that he would come to faith. He's a, he's a great guy, a moral guy, a very nice guy, but he's not kind of turned his life over and given the, the, the lordship of his life over to Jesus. Right? God desires that he would. Right? God has shown how. 
right? And we pray in accordance with that. So we've got these two reasons for prayer. One, pray for us while we're in the community, that the the opposing forces, that the leadership would change that, that we can live in this community really for the protection of the church and for the protection of those who are either not maybe mature in their faith yet or new to their faith, that they would not be pulled away by opposition. And then there's also pray that people would come to faith, right? That we can engage in that prayer. So with those two purposes, here's what God says, verse 5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. So I want you to hear the salvation or the salvific language, the, the terms used about Jesus, right? That he is mediator and ransom. So I want to back out again. Remember, kind of a main idea for today is that Paul describes the church as a a community engaged in a battle. There's a battle against God. That we're born into that battle. See, we're born, even if you're born into a Christian family, even if you're born, you go to a Christian school, even if you're, you're raised, you come to faith at a young age, the idea is you're born in sin, right? You're born in opposition to God, right? No one just naturally wants to follow God. Everybody wants to follow themselves. We have to teach and proclaim the gospel over that people might turn and make that turn towards God. And so Jesus, the Savior Paul is speaking about, is that mediator, right? That he mediates between a sinful humanity and a holy God. There's no greater image of that than Christ on the cross, literally hanging between heaven and earth, literally hanging between a holy God and sinful humanity, our mediator. And then he is a ransom for us who believe. Listen, bought out of enemy kind of ownership, if you will, right? The penalty paid, the price paid. You hear the gospel language that Paul is using. And he's doing that because we're engaged in this battle. And he wants us to understand, hey, listen, not only are we engaged as the church over here in this battle, oftentimes on two fronts, against culture and then against kind of, in our setting, American Christianity, if you will, and their setting, some other issues. But not only are we fighting this, but we're born on another team. See, when we're born, we're born broken. We're born in that sin. We're born under the curse of sin. So we're born separate from God, and there is one mediator, Jesus. See, the gospel message is this. It's it's simple in its explanation. It's unending in its implication. That there's a God who created you and loves you. If you're new here or you're a, a guest here, maybe you're here for the first time, hear nothing else other than there's a God who loves you. Right? There's a God who created you, designed you. You're not some random chance of accident of science. There's a designer. There's a God who loves you and made you, and you were designed to be a worshiper of God. And that's not just what we do when we sing songs, but that our lives would bring worth and glory and beauty to God. That's our created design, our ontological purpose, if you will. We're made to be that, but then all of us choose to go the other direction. I like what Pastor Trevor said today, like, just getting here today, like, so I always say at Generations, like, if you're here and you're new, understand that we know we're broken, right? That fair? We know we need Jesus. We know we need forgiveness. Even in Christ, we know how flawed we can be. And so we're all born separate from, in need of a mediator, separate from a holy God, but Christ then becomes that. 
So Jesus enters into human flesh. He lives the life you and I are called to live, but choose not to live and are born in opposition to. He lives that life flawlessly, and then he goes and he gives himself as a sacrifice, a ransom, a penalty to be our mediator, the very thing we celebrate here at the table, that he gives his life, takes our penalty, takes our punishment on his back, in his hands, in his feet, and somehow, some way, the creator of life, God become flesh, dies to pay our penalty, that our sin could be forgiven. Just as Jesus says at the table, my body broken, my blood shed as a covenant, a promise for your forgiveness. In my blood, he says. See, Jesus comes and he pays the penalty you and I deserve to pay, that he did not deserve to pay, but he does it for us. That through him, we have a mediator to a holy God. He pays the penalty to buy us out of our sin and to buy us into the family of God. Right? That you, me, we have this need that we could not meet. And so God became flesh to meet it for us. So the Son of God, Jesus, in human flesh, eternal, no beginning, entirely God, became entirely human to pay our penalty, to reunite us with a holy God to pay for something we could never do. In Romans 5, I think we have this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, Jesus goes to the cross or goes to the grave to forgive our sins, but the gospel doesn't stop there. See, a lot of times the gospel is like this, you're forgiven and then we're waiting for heaven and we're, we're missing some pieces, Right? But that Jesus, yes, dies for our sins, but he resurrects from the grave to give us new life. You see, if it was just about forgiveness in heaven, as soon as we came to faith, he could just take us with him, right? But rather, he leaves us here so that we could gather locally in a body called a church so that we could be and live and serve his purposes, right? That we would be here a witness to this message, a testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that others might know him. That we could gather and we could pray for those people that don't know him. We could gather and pray that those who are in authority over us, we all just went through COVID, right? We know what authorities, how that can affect a church, right? We, we could pray those things when we gather together and we can pray for people who don't know Jesus to come to faith. So let's read that again, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So one God, that's really aimed at Artemis and Roman cult worship, where they worship the emperors and a plethora, uh, just a whole bunch of idols. There's one God. There's one mediator. There's one truth. There's one way to be reconciled to God. I mentioned COVID, and I lament what happened from 2020, 21, 22. See, the church had an opportunity in the midst of that to be different, right? COVID hit, something none of us have ever dealt with. I don't think many of us were around for the early 1900s version, right? And so we'd never, listen, if you are, God bless you, right? Uh, that's like 110, so good. But we had a moment where we could have been different. 
And I think for a moment we responded well, but then the church in America just as politicized and just as divided as the rest of us, the rest of the country. And we missed our moment to be something different and unique. And so we, we have this place where Paul calls us into praying for and, and living differently. See, we're engaged in a battle, and unfortunately too many Christians decided let's battle this out on Facebook and through politics. But rather he's saying, listen, let me, let me show you, not only do you, do you teach truth and do you say what is false, but let me show you how you live that out. Let me show you what powerful way you can live this out that you can gather, you can pray. And gather, if that meant get on Zoom and have prayer nights, whatever that means, right? Whatever that means for you, that here's the way through, that we can live godly lives in a world full of opposition. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you've heard this gospel maybe for the first time, again, maybe you just stumbled in here today for whatever reason, and you hear this message, and you hear this challenge, and you hear this calling, maybe your question is, well, what must I do to be saved? See, that same question was asked about 2,000 years ago when Peter preaches the first gospel in the first church after the ascended Jesus went back to his throne and poured out his spirit on his church. Peter preaches and thousands say, listen, what must we do to be saved? And Peter's response is repent and be baptized, Acts 2.38. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. What do we do? We repent, right? We believe. We, we begin to follow Jesus. Our first step of repentance, our first step of obedience should probably be baptism, right? And, and that in that, there's a promise that God's spirit, God's empowering will cause us to live a different life. That not only do we begin to be transformed by the power of the gospel, by the power of the spirit, by the, the resurrected Jesus, but also that same Holy Spirit gathers us as local bodies in the church, right? That the local church, see, this is being written to a local church in Ephesus, just like the book, the Ephesians, just like the book to the Philippians, just like all of them, they're written to these local gatherings because there's power in gathering together and becoming a body of believers that we could do that because of what Christ has done for us. Verse 7, for this, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher, and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, it might seem odd that Paul, who writes the inerrant words of Scripture because of God's Spirit, for him to say, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. But you understand, they live in a world where they're being filled with lies. And, and Paul's beginning of this book, chapter 1, is about, hey, listen, there's some people that are teaching you lies. So I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying, this is the truth, I've been appointed by Jesus himself, to proclaim this gospel, but there's kind of a bit of a twist. Most of you know who Paul is, but Paul used to be Saul, a Pharisee and a persecutor of Christians, right? He was literally on his way to persecute and kill Christians when Jesus transformed him, revealed himself to him. And Saul becomes a man we know of as Paul, a first century early church leader. And he notes here, listen, I changed and God called me to do something completely outside my understanding, right? Rather than go back to the Jewish people, of which I'm a scholar, go to the non-Jewish people, right? It's like me, the way I look, pastoring a church in the suburb that I'm in. There's a lot of better, let's just put it this way, there's a lot of better choices than me. But God saw fit, right? I think it's his humor. 
I think it's improving. Look, I can do anything with anyone. Believe it. This guy, right? So Paul says, listen, he didn't call me to go back to what I'm good at. He called me to another place. See, Paul's undertones here keep reminding us that we're engaged in this battle, that we're born on this team, but Jesus makes us part of this team, right? That we live in this world that's pushing and warring against us, and sometimes even people within are pushing and warring against us. And Paul says, listen, it would have been super normal for me to go back to that community and tell them they missed Jesus, but rather he has sent me to this community. That's us living in this world that opposes us on purpose for the sake of and the mission of the gospel of Jesus. See, Risen Church, you get to minister to a people here in Santa Monica that in Cerritos I can't reach. That's why we partner together because God's got you here. So the call is, will you, will you gather? Will you pray? Here's some reasons. So that you can live in this world and not have people pushed out or misled, but also so that others will come to faith that these two things, you can pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. So if you're here today, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Right? I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll just out him I, I, because I know the Turnbull family. This is the West Turnbulls, not to put him on the spot. Now, West is no Jesus, but this is somebody who's known God known Jesus for a long time. I mean, like hundreds of years, right? Been walking with Jesus for a long time. There's others that are newer to Jesus. Maybe that's you. There's some who have never just made that decision to wake up every day and follow Jesus. So let me break this down. How can you apply this today? So if you're more mature in faith, are you helping lead Risen Church to be more of a praying church in line with Isaiah 56, 7? A house of prayer for all people. Are you a catalyst for that? Are you someone who helps lead into that, call ourselves into that? Are you learning how to pray? Are you teaching others how to pray for all people? And do you pray for others? Now, maybe you're newer to Jesus. God calls us to gather together uniquely with our church, our local body, right? And to pray for others. That includes those who, who oppose us. So if you're new to that, maybe you're even new to prayer, maybe you'd be afraid, like, I don't want to have to pray out loud. Or If that's you, understand we're called to gather and pray. Not just pray alone, that's good, also good, but to pray when we gather. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, again, I would urge you, first of all, to use Paul's words, to repent and be baptized. To repent is just a simple word. It means turn 180 degrees and run away from sin. Run to Jesus, away from sin. If that's you today, I would encourage you, speak to the elder that was up here earlier, or Pastor Trevor. Let them walk you through what that means. Now, lastly, we, we have a lot of parents and kids in our service, and, and so I always kind of had that carve out for them. So if you're here and you're a parent, maybe your kids are in the other room, maybe you've got teens who are with you, do you teach your children to pray? Do you pray with them? And when you pray, do you teach them to pray for others? Maybe they get home, they've had a problem with another student at school. Is your response, let's pray for that person. Let's turn and pray for those who oppose us. Let's pray for our school. Let's pray for others. Can you as a parent lean into this? See, Jesus came and gave everything that we might become sons and daughters of God. And in that, he calls us to live in such a way that God is glorified. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You came, you gave everything.
There is nothing we need that you haven't provided for. You ascended back to the throne after you resurrected from the grave, alive today, alive as we are. Better. And you have poured out your spirit on the church. You've empowered us to be different. That we have a purpose until you finally return and make all things right. No matter who we are or where we are in our walk, in our faith, Jesus, will you call us a step further today? May we understand we wage this battle more in prayer than we do online or more in church than we do in the ballot box. Help us to learn the lessons of what you have been teaching us that we might be a transformed people who then go out into culture, on the social media, into the ballot box, whatever, transformed by you. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.